0: Anyway, story goes that uh, Farmer Jones got out of his car and while heading for his friend's door he noticed a pig with a wooden leg. His curiosity aroused, he asked Fred, he said, how would that pig get him that there wooden leg? He said, well, Jonesy, that's a mighty special pig. He says, a while back a wild boar attacked me while I was walking in the woods and that pig there came a running and went after that boar, chased him away, saved my life. He says, oh, and the boar tore up his leg? Oh, no, he was fine. But a little bit later, we had that fire and started in the shed up against the barn. Well, that old pig started squealing like he was stuck, woke us up, and before we got out of there, that darn thing herded all the other animals out of the barn and saved them all. Oh, so that's when he hurt his leg. Oh, no, not at all. He was a winded though. He so, there was the other time when my tractor hit a rock, I rolled down the hill into a pond and I was not cleaned out. Before I came to, the pig had dove into the pond, dragged me out before I drowned. Sure did save my life. Is that how the pig hurt his leg? So, said, oh, no, he was fine. In fact, it cleaned him up a little bit, too. He said, all right, Fred, Well, let me ask you a question. How did the pig get the wooden leg? Well, the farmer said, you know, a pig like that, a pig that special, you don't want to go eating them all at one time. That was good. Hey, you'll love next week's Mother's Day joke. Hey, uh, you know, I, the, the, the thing that, that reminded me when I, when I heard that story, the first thing it reminded me of, of uh, was the confusion that we live in in our world today. You know, we live in a pretty confused world. There's a saying that goes something like, you know, we all want our cake and eat it too. You know, we talk out of both sides of our mouths. And if you think about confusion, think about the fact we live in a culture that has done everything that it can to deny the very existence of God we have tried to shove God out of the picture altogether. That's out of one side of our mouth. And then on the other side of our mouth, the same people who want to deny the very existence of God will say out of the other side of their mouth, well, but if he does exist, I believe he's going to just let everybody into heaven once a person dies. We don't want to believe in him, but if he does exist, let's cover the basis. He's going to have to do what we want him to do when we want him to do it, and after I die, I'm going to heaven because, after all, I deserve to go there. And you stop and think about confusion. How can one, How can at one moment we deny the very existence of a God, and the other moment we're saying, but if he does exist, then this is the way he's going to do things. You know, from the book of Romans, we've been looking at or addressing the uh, question of how to get into heaven. We started to look at it last week. I want to take another look at it again today. But from this particular book, God gives very clear and concise directions as to how you and me can know and be confident that the day that we die, that we will indeed go to heaven. And what I want to do is I want this to become a very personal thing, because obviously you don't care much about the fact that the day I die, whether I go to heaven or not. And some of you I know where where you would prefer at times, but uh, the reality of that is, is that it really doesn't make any difference where I go. What really matters is where are you going? Let's personalize it. I want to know the day that I die that I can be confident and look forward to going to heaven and being in the presence of God? I want to know that. That's a question that has to be resolved in each one of our hearts. And I would hope that you would want to know that too. How indeed can we be justified before God? How can I be sure that the day that I die, that I'll go to heaven? Now, if you recall from our last time together, there were three steps that were outlined in Romans chapter 3, which we looked at in detail, and just kind of as a review, because I'm going to lead it, kind of springboard into what we're going to do today, but there were three steps that lead to heaven according to Romans chapter 3, and we saw the first step was, before any of us can make one step towards heaven, we've got to recognize, according to the Bible, that all of us are guilty before God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there are none righteous, no, not one, not one of us, that all of us have gone astray or turned from God, rebelled from God, and gone our own way. And it's important that we recognize that there's nothing good in any one of us. Because, as I mentioned, many times as we discuss one another, we like to talk to each about each other on the terms of, he's a good person, she's a good person, he's that, he's that, he's the other thing. But the reality of it is, is from God's perspective, from a holy, perfect God's perspective, as he looks at me and as he looks at you, he doesn't see anything good in any of us. And he wants us to recognize and to know that and to understand that. And the reason for it is this. Until I know that I am lost, I will not stop and ask for directions. And as a man, even when I know that I'm lost, it'll still take me a while to stop and ask for directions. And as you sit here today and as you listen to these words, if you don't know when you die that you're going beyond a shadow of a doubt and you have full confidence and assurance that you're going to heaven, then guess what? You're lost and you don't know the way to get there. So we need to stop and ask for directions. Before I will go to a physician, I've got to be totally convinced that I am sick and in need of help. And before I'll go to a savior for the forgiveness of my sins, I've got to be convinced that I'm guilty. There's nothing good in any one of us. And kind of, I've got to share this story with you because in light of what we talked about you know, last week and as we studied this, and as I mentioned this point, I left immediately last week and I had to go over to the stadium because the angels were in town. So we had chapel with the angels and the uh, Tampa Bay was in town. And one of the things that we're doing is I do both teams, and it works out good in baseball because one's on the field, the other's in the locker room, and vice versa. So it works out good that you can do both and not have a conflict in schedule. But what we're also trying to do this year is we want to try to to reach as many people as we can, so we're trying to reach the umpires as well. Now, if you know anything about umpires... (laughs) Well, that's interesting, and you're really going to laugh when I finish the story because... (laughs) They have, and and in the stadium, there's a place where the umpires dress, and they've got a a guard who stands outside the door. So they don't have, there's no one that can have access into the presence of the umpires without going through this guard. And the reason for it's obvious. I mean, the impropriety, you don't want to go walking by there and see the manager walking out laughing and, you know, or, or putting his wallet back in his pocket, you know, little things like that kind of, you know, can paint the game somewhat. Uh, so anyway, I went up and I gave him, gave him a card that we have for baseball chapel. And I said, you know, I'd like to uh, go in and see the umpires. If I can, go ask them if they would like to see me, with, you know, to do whatever they'd like to do. Pray together, have chapel, a little Bible study. I, it doesn't matter. I'm flexible. So he goes in. He comes back out a few minutes later and he says, you know what, they'd like to see you. And I go, hey, that's a good, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, so I go in and the head umpire of the crew introduced himself to me and says hello and a couple things. I, I said, well, you know, where would you guys like to meet? he goes, well, you know, we talked it over, and uh, um, we decided we're good today. But, uh, but thanks for stopping by. And, and, and I'm thinking, we're good today. And I'm, and I'm going, I was ready to go, no, you're not. Let me read Romans chapter 3. And in fact, your umpires, you know you're never good. You're not good today. You're not good yesterday. You're never good. Because one person thinks you're good. The other person thinks you're bad. You can't win. But I just thought, well, isn't it ironic how we perceive ourselves? And I know what he was saying. He was saying was, I talked it over with everybody, and everything's good today in their life. No crisis, no tragedy, no need to turn to God for anything. We're good today. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? We're good today. But hey, don't, you know, stop back, because there may be a day we're not good. (laughs) It was funny. I stayed for the game, and they were horrendous. We're not even close to being good, but the point is, is that we must recognize, and I don't believe that any person can come to genuine faith, which is once we learn that we're guilty before God, the Bible says that the, the purpose of identifying our guilt is so that we will shut up and stop making excuses before God. We'll stop making excuses for our behavior, why we're this way, why we're that way. You know, I hear people all the time, every, you know, one excuse after the other. You know, I do this because, you know, my my dad did that or my uncle did that or my brother did that or it's in our family. And, you know, we all swam in the same dirty gene pool, you know. And and that's the way I am because that's the way they are. And that's the way we've always been. And that's just the way our family is. And we're always looking for an excuse to tag onto someone else the lack of personal accountability and responsibility that, you know what, I'm the way that I am because I chose to do the things that I do. And because of that, God says, Chuck, you are guilty. And I stand before God, and God says, you know what, it's time to shut your mouth. In fact, in verse 19 of Romans 3, it says that the law, the purpose of the law is to shut us all up. Just to shut us up and stop making excuses before God. In fact, the, per- the, the perfect illustration I was thinking of as I was going through and studying was that of Job. You know, Job made a million excuses why he didn't trust or believe in God. And finally, Job just said, you know what, after God questioned him for four chapters about everything that God knows that Job didn't know, Job just says, you know what, I think it's time for me to just put my hand over my mouth and shut up. And I was thinking, you know, that would be a perfect life verse for some of us. <laughs> now, you think you know who I'm talking about. Now, that's just not fair, is it? First, we recognize we're all guilty before God. Then once we recognize that we're guilty, you know what's interesting about it is as you go through and you study the Bible, you'll notice that people who recognize their guilt before God, the first question out of their mouth is, What must I do? What must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? Because when we realize that it's our sin, our rebellion that put Jesus Christ on the cross, as the gospel was preached, as Peter preached at Pentecost, the first thing that was out of the mouth of those who heard is, what must I do to be saved from the wrath or the judgment or the condemnation of God? We stuck him on a cross and we murdered him. We are guilty before God. We are accountable to God and God is going to avenge the death of Christ on the cross. What must I do to be saved from the wrath and the condemnation and the judgment of God? Men and women, you and I can never come into a relationship with God until we realize it was our rebellion that put Jesus Christ on the cross. His death was for me. I murdered him. I killed him. And because I did that, I will be held accountable to God. The Bible says that a person who is broken and contrite heart knows they're guilty before God. And the first thing you say is, what must I do to be safe from the wrath of God? Here's what you gotta do. You gotta respond with faith in the finished work of Christ. Must respond in faith to the finished work of Christ. Believe what God says is true. That I'm guilty and that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in my place. Respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. That God is the just and the justifier. That it's God's program, it's God's way. And the last thing we saw was we need to refuse to place any confidence in our own efforts. It's Jesus and Jesus himself and him alone on the cross. It's as Paul said to the Corinthians, it is Jesus Christ that we preach and him crucified and nothing else. That's just the way it is. You know, in the eternal realm of things, as sin is sin and as right is right and God is just, there can be no mercy apart from justice. Sin must be punished and God took himself in the punishment upon himself, the punishment of man's sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God can forgive sin and regards those who in gratitude accept his provision, Christ's sacrifice in our behalf. He then declares us righteous before God. You know, as, as wonderful as all this is, and it's nice to have exact and precise directions to get to heaven, there's one thing that is created here and that's a problem or a dilemma for those who are paying attention. I want you to listen very carefully to this because this is going to be the basis of the argument that we find in Romans chapter 4 and that's this. If you are a Jewish listener or reader and you're hearing that it is faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross by which we're declared right before God, acknowledge our guilt, respond with faith to the finished work of christ don't rely on anything that we've done but on him and him alone if it's faith in jesus christ and, and him alone for the forgiveness of sin as a jewish listener or reader the first thing you're thinking about is hey wait a minute we've got a long history in our nation and we have a long relationship a, a long outstanding relationship with god and if you're listening to those words the first thing you're thinking is well what about all of our people What about everyone who has preceded us, who has died before Jesus died on the cross? Where do they go and what happens to them? If you're saying the only way that you and I can be right or declared right with God and the only way you're ever going to get into heaven is by believing in Jesus, well, they never heard of Jesus. They never saw Jesus. They never knew that he died on the cross and they died before that. What happens to them? That's a great question. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to call a couple witnesses to the stand. Remember the courtroom setting. He's going to call a couple witnesses. The first one's going to be Abraham. The second one is David. And they're going to be able to relate to Abraham and David. And we'll see in a minute why that is. But before we look at them and listen to their testimony from the witness stand as to how a person who died before Christ ever died on the cross could be declared righteous before God, we need to recognize and understand before we hear that that Paul had already proven that all men are sinners. He already eliminated any wiggle room for any of us. All, none, none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned, all have gone astray. That includes you, that includes me. There's no room for any of us to come out of this and and think that somehow we're innocent or guiltless. He eliminated all that, so he's going to explain to them how sinners can be saved from the judgment of God. The condemnation from what the Bible calls the coming wrath of God that jesus christ will come again one day and he will judge the living and the dead the judge of all humanity the theological term and you need to kind of strap your thinking caps on here for a second and and i I want to present this because it's going to be the foundation for what we're going to build upon in in this particular message but the theological term that we're looking at is justification by faith justification by faith and i want to explain to you very clearly in, in, in a definition that we can all grasp and understand Justification is the act of God whereby he declares that those who respond in faith to Christ are righteous on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Justification by faith. Each part of the definition is important. Number one, it is an act of God. Okay? It is something that God does in a moment in time. It is not a process. There are no degrees of justification. Justification every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sins, my sins, individually, the Bible says that we all have an equal or right standing before God. We're all on the same ground, all on the same plane. None of us are better than each other. We're all there because God extends mercy to those who seek mercy from him. We're all on the same plane. No sinner can justify himself before God. And most important, justification doesn't mean that God makes us righteous, listen, but that he declares us righteous. It is a legal term, that's why we use a legal courtroom as a scenario. So the term, so we all understand it, is this. God has presented to you and me the charges that he has against us. As we stand there and listen to the charges, and as hopefully we begin to shrink smaller and smaller, realizing how guilty we really are, we stand before the judge of the universe, God himself, and we put our head down and he asks us, how do you respond to the charges? And if we recognize what he says is true, we respond guilty as charged. Guilty. Fine. Then God says, and then this is the punishment. You will spend eternity in hell. Unless you believe my plan for you to escape that judgment is by believing Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross when we respond in faith and say, I'll believe that. I know I'm guilty. I believe what you say. Then at that moment in time, the moment that you believe what God says, the gavel slams down and the judge of the universe says, then I now declare you righteous before me. You're still guilty of sin. That'll never change. But I have now declared you righteous. And the reason that God is just is because he doesn't have a double standard. Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. Someone had to pay the price, otherwise justice is thrown out the window and there is no justice. Think about it for a second. You've got somebody who stands before a judge and say, I'm guilty of that, and he says, well, you know what, then you can just go free because you recognize you're guilty. That's not justice. What about all of those who are affected by what that person did? Justice says someone must pay a price for what that person did now what god has done graciously and in his great mercy he says well you know what i'll pay the price for you i will take your place all you got to do is believe what i say to be true and i will then declare you at that moment in time a very specific moment we are declared righteous before god this isn't some vague thing this isn't like well when did you become a christian well you know i've always been a christian you know i've always kind of believed in god i've always this or that you know what no that's nonsense there has to be a specific moment in time in all of our lives where we recognize before God that we're guilty and we respond in faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're going to look at that in detail so we understand that. There's such a vague sense of what, it, what we need to do or how can we be right before God in our culture today that we've got a whole bunch of people thinking they're right with God and you know what, they deny his existence out of one side of their mouth yet they tell him that they're going to heaven whether he likes it or not out of the other side and God says, I'm not mocked by any of that. We need to understand and recognize exactly what the Bible teaches. So many of us confuse justification, being declared by God at a moment in time, with sanctification, which has to do with after God declares you and I righteous then we are to live a way that is worthy of how we've just come into a relationship with God, and that's, that's uh, sanctification. That is, every day we become more and more like Jesus in how we live, and that changes. Some days we're very much like Jesus in how we live, and some days you'd think we didn't know anything about what God wants us to do in our life the way that we're living. That's sanctification, but just, and, that's what, and that's our responsibility, to be obedient and to grow more and more like Christ. And God takes us through that process. But justification is all about the judge who is the just and the justifier. He has the authority to do that. What gives God the right to do that? He's God. There you go. Sometimes it gets real simple, doesn't it? He can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. That's his program. That's his plan. So he says, look, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, I'll declare you righteous at that moment in time. But if you don't, you will never be that's the way it goes so anyway that's the basis now the bottom line of all of it is this that's what he says now how does he illustrate it to people who are thinking in the back of their minds it's like well, wait a minute what about my family what about my dad or my mom or my brother or my sister or somebody who had died before me what about those in our family history what about you know abraham for example the father of our nation he didn't know anything about jesus He didn't live to see the day that Jesus died on the cross. He didn't know he needed to place his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. How was he justified then? Are you going to tell me that Abraham isn't in the presence of God, that he didn't get into heaven? And Paul says, man, you know what? I'm glad that you asked that because I'd love to explain it to you, and here's how we're going to do it. Number one, turn with me to Romans chapter uh, chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at the illustration that he gives as to whether or not really the bottom line is this is Abraham here's the question is Abraham in heaven as we speak is Abraham in heaven and if he is how do he get there number one we're gonna look at verses 1 through 8 what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found it says for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Here's what he's saying. What did Abraham learn about how a person is to be declared righteous before God? What was the message or the lesson for Abraham? What did Abraham understand about how it's, or what one must do or what one must believe to be right before God so the moment that he died that he would go to heaven? What did he understand? Here's what he understood. that You know what? Our relationship with God is going to be based on faith and not works. Our relationship with God is going to be based on faith and not works. Notice what he says. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In order to understand that, turn with me back in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. And here's the story and the passage that's being quoted as an illustration of how Abraham was justified before God or declared righteous before God. The story that we look at is found in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 15, we read these words. It says, now after these things, and the things that he's referring to is that Abraham went to battle against a number of kings when he had found that his nephew Lot had been taken, into ho- had been taken as a hostage. So Abraham gathered his troops together and went after Lot to rescue him against the kings of Sodom and those around in that, that area. And it says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you and your reward shall be very great. In fact, he was, what he was saying to God was he had gone to God and said, Man, are they going to come after me? And I am I in big trouble. And God answered his prayers and says Don't worry about it. I will be your shield. And in fact, what you read there, I'm a shield to you, your reward shall be great, is actually I am your great reward. So don't worry about them. I am your shield. I am your great re- reward. You have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to fear. And Abram said, O Lord, what wilt thou give me, since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. What he was saying was, he had been promised in Genesis 12 that God would make Abraham a great nation. It had been 10 years since that promise, and what he was actually asking God is, he's saying, God, you know, in a way, he's saying, do you remember the promise that you made me? Because nothing's happened as far as that promise is concerned, and so his question to God was, hey, look, do I have to adopt someone and bring them as a part of my family, because it's obvious that I don't have any heirs, and so I'm thinking maybe it's this kid that I should adopt, and in that culture, is our culture today, if you legally adopt someone, they rightfully become your family. Which is an interesting thing, because as we go through Romans, you're going to find that in Romans chapter 8, that God adopts you and I, into his family, giving us all legal rights, the Bible says for those who believe in Christ, we become what? Children of God to those who believe in his name. It's a legal proceeding that God says, you are now adopted into my family, and you have all the rights and privileges of those who are members of my family. And what a wonderful thing that is to know when we're adopted and taken from the world and taken into a home and nourished and cherished and loved, what a wonderful thing that is to know that someone loves me and cares for me they didn't have to do that they could have left me out there but they chose to bring me in god does the same thing for those who respond in faith to christ now what he's saying is am i supposed to adopt someone to help you carry out your plan and he says to him in verse four then behold the word of the lord came to abram saying this man will not be your heir but one who shall come forth from your own body he shall be your heir and he took him outside gave him that word picture i love god when he does this He says, now look through the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. He says, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then, listen, Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promise that God made, and the moment that Abraham believed that promise, God declared him righteous. He believed God. He took him outside and he said, look around. You see all that? You see as many stars as the heavens there are? That's how many descendants you're going to have. And you know what? And in his heart, he believed him. And God, knowing our hearts, knows the moment that we give our heart to the Lord and we believe his promises. And at that moment, the judge of all eternity, the judge of the universe, declared him righteous. Bang. Just like that. You know, in fact, the word believe means amen. You know what Abraham said to him? I love it. God says, you see all the stars out there, Abraham? I see them, Lord. He goes, that's what your descendants are going to be like. And Abraham said, amen. Preach it. He knew in his heart, he said, amen. No more negotiating. No more discussion. No more questions. No more trying to help God. He said, if that's what you said, then that's what I believe. Amen. Period. Period and a conversation why is this so important because we're going back to Romans again and notice that this is what Paul illustrates as far as Abraham's righteousness with God it was at that moment in time that very specific moment when Abraham finally believed God and you know why I say finally because 10 years earlier he had been made the same promise but Abraham still had not believed God because he wouldn't have been asking him if he needed help getting the job done. At that moment in time, he believed God. At that very exact moment in time for all of eternity, look what the Bible says in Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him. The word reckoned is also translated accounted to him. It was imputed to him. It's an accounting term, and I love this. It means that the moment that Abraham believed in God's promise, that God instantly deposited into Abraham's eternal bank account, spiritual life and forgiveness, and that he would never again hold him accountable for his sins, past, present, or future. It was imputed to him. It was accounted to him. It was reckoned to him. It was the moment that he believed. It was the moment that the transaction took place for all of eternity. It as if somebody would come to you and say, Chuck, you know what? I am going to give you a half a million dollars. All you've got to do is believe what I say. And the moment I said, fine, I believe it, that instant transaction took place. And if I'd go check my bank account, the money had been wired there the moment that it was said. You see, faith is what makes a person declared righteous before God and not works. Abraham didn't say, well, what else What do else I got to do? What do I got to do? Uh, You know what? Oh, you're going to transfer the funds? Uh, What do I got to do? Do I got to go open an account? Do I got to go give you a deposit slip? I mean, what's my part? You already did your part. Which was? Believe what I say. And I do everything. I offer you the deal. You just believe me. And I do everything else. Wow. By faith and not by works. They believe. You know, what's interesting is when the question is raised today, how does one get into heaven? Here's what you usually hear. Well, you know what? You got to do good things. Got to be a good person. We we already ruled that out. Guess what? You're not a good person. You'll never be a good person as far as God is concerned. Well, I got to do good things. Hey, you know what? All your good things are like filthy rags to God. They're just gross and disgusting. And you know what? And there's nothing you can do that's good. Well, then, bam, we're in big trouble. No, we're not. Not if you recognize that, first of all, you can't do anything and there's nothing good in you and there's nothing else you can do and God won't accept any of it. And if you recognize that, you're on the right road because a broken and contrite heart God will never despise. Well, then what do I do? Then you believe in faith that God took care of it in the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. Well, and you know what answers the question and takes away all the confusion? Notice what Paul said to his listeners and to us as readers. What does the scripture say? The place of authority to always go is the word of God. I don't care what you say. I don't care your opinions. You shouldn't care what I say, and you shouldn't care about my opinions. We live in a world filled with people who got opinions about everything. Well, I think this, or I think that. How do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? Who cares? The definitive question is this. What does God say? It's his program, it's his heaven, it's his plan. Why don't we ask him how to get to heaven? And that's exactly what Paul did. He turned his readers back to the word of God and says, what does the scripture say? Because he knew what would happen. They would begin to debate and argue with him. But when it's definitive and he shows the word of God, and says, this is what God says. You know what, don't argue with me and don't debate with me and don't tell me your feelings, don't tell me what you think and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. And I tell you people the same thing. I don't care what you think. And I don't say that arrogantly. I'm just saying it because all it does is waste a whole bunch of time. You'll think one thing, I'll think another thing. So what? The only thing that matters is what does God say? That's the scripture. He turned them back to scripture and said, let's go back to the word of God. And this is what God says. God says the moment that Abraham believed the specific promise of God, that God declared him righteous. Period. End of it. And you know what? We don't have any time, but I want you to jot this down. We don't have time for this, but we still got some time. Jot this down, because there's probably nothing more confusing to people today than thinking they can work their way into heaven versus what the Word of God clearly says. Write down John chapter 6, verses 28 through 40. See what God says about the subject. John 6, 28 through 40, verse 47, verse 68 through 69. John 7, we'll just keep you in John, make it simple. 37 through 39. 39. John 11, 23 through 27. John chapter 20, verse 26 through 31. And I'm going to sum every one of these passages up with a very simple verse that most of us have heard or seen the banners, and that's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him will have eternal life and will not perish. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And this is the work of God, that you believe upon him, Jesus, whom God has sent. That is the only work that's acceptable to God from a human perspective, that you believe what God says about sin. You believe what God says about judgment. You believe what God says about your guilt. You believe what God says that you're going to hell. You believe what God says that without Jesus Christ you're lost forever. You believe what God says that he sent Jesus because he loved you to take your place on the cross. You believe what God says that Jesus died in your place on the cross. And the moment you believe that, then God declares you right before God. And he said he's believable because he raised him three days later from the dead. Shouting to the world that he has the ability to forgive sin, the ability to give life, the ability to to, uh, give us eternal life with God forever. The resurrection is a sign and a seal that those who would believe in Jesus Christ would find forgiveness before God and life eternal. And the Bible says, Amen. See, that's what we need to recognize and understand. And going back to Romans chapter 4, we need to realize it's by faith and faith alone and not works. There's nothing that we can do. That's the clear message of the gospel says, now, to the one who works. Notice what he says in verse 4. The one who works is wages, not reckoned as a favor, but it's what's due. If you've ever worked for somebody and they gave you a paycheck and they acted like they were doing you a favor, they don't understand. You work for it. You earn it. That's what's due to a person who works. You get what you deserve. But what about the person who doesn't work and doesn't do anything and the person says, I've got a paycheck for you. All you need to do is give it to you. And you go, well, what's up with that? I said, well, do you believe it or not? Well, I don't know. Well, until you do, guess what? It ain't going to happen. Well, I'll try it. And they hand it to you. And you hold it. And you go, what? I'll give you a perfect illustration of that. Uh, many of you who follow football, you know that like Kurt Warner, the quarterback for the Rams, right? Well, Kurt Warner, this past year they won the Super Bowl. Kurt Warner's contract was $250,000. That was what his contract was. No performance clauses, no incentive clauses, nothing. That was his contract. So every week, every game comes, you get a 16th of your paycheck in the NFL, and you get your game check. That's how payroll is distributed. At the end of the season, the Rams came to him and said, you know what, Uh, we want to reward you. And they gave him a half a million dollar bonus. They just hand him a check for $500,000. Now, see, even that is skewed a little bit because people will say, "But, but he earned it. No, he didn't earn it. He earned the $250,000. He worked every week. That's why he got the check. They gave him the bonus because that was mercy, that was grace, that was whatever it was, but they wanted to recognize, but they wanted to recognize what? His work. He did a good job, therefore let's go ahead and pay him. Plus, he's the end of his contract. They got to negotiate with him too, so it was kind of a good faith thing. (laughs) Ah, now see, it's all falling into place. Now to really help understand what God does is, here's what God says. He goes, but Chuck, he goes, that would be like you, the ram's calling you and saying, you know what, we just want to give you $500,000. Anybody ever done that for you? You see why it's so hard to understand God's plan? It just isn't reinforced very often in our world, is it? See, when God offers us a gift with no strings attached, and all we got to do is believe that and accept that, it's really hard for us to do because we're so cynical. There's always strings attached, there's always an underlying motive, there's always something going on. But see, what God says is, hey, you know what? It's by faith and not works. And and he also, now he calls David to the witness stand, and look what David says. Just as David also speaks, notice that in verse 5, the contrast is but, what? You work for your wages, you get paid. But, to the one who doesn't work, but, what? Believes in him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. You got it? You can't work for it. You just believe what God says. And if you believe what God says, he declares you instantly righteous before God. Now he calls David to the witness stand. David says this, David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness, apart from works. Now if you know anything about the history of David and you also know about Abraham, guess what? Neither of those guys were perfect men. They both made mistakes. Abraham made mistakes, And guess what? We all know David made mistakes. His were a little more glaring than the ones that Abraham made, but Abraham was still guilty before God too. What was David's mistake? Well, the big mistakes that we recognize from history are that David committed sin, and the sin that he committed was adultery when he had sex with another man's wife, and to cover up the adultery, he had the guy killed! David, who he gets called to the witness stand, is a murderer, an adulterer, and he knows he's guilty before God, but the good news that he gives to you and me who are equally guilty before God, maybe not of adultery, maybe not of murder, but we're guilty of other things, and maybe you are guilty of those things. But the bottom line is this. Here's what David has to say. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. You don't think David took comfort in knowing that God can forgive adultery and murder? You don't think you and I should take comfort in knowing that God can forgive, fill in your own blank? It says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, not even covered, but taken away. It says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will what? Not take into account. There's that legal term again. Blessed is the Lord and blessed is the man whose sins will not be taken into account. If you have recognized your guilt before God and you've responded in faith and believed what God says that Jesus died in your place and you've been declared righteous, you will never and I will never be held accountable for any of our sin, past, present, or even future. Jesus took away those sins on the cross. The Bible says in the book of 1 John that it's like a spaceship, that God took away the sin of the world, put him upon his shoulders, and just took it and shot it into eternity for all eternity. And that's why the Bible says, you know, as far as the east is from the west, so far as our transgressions are removed from us, we will never be held accountable for sin ever again as we stand before Jesus Christ one day as those who put their trust in him to be rewarded for the works that we've done here on earth. He will never hold that against us. And you know what, you don't think, David, you don't think that we should be just jumping up and down and clicking our heels together and praising God every day, knowing that every one of our sins, past, present, and future, will never be held against us? Because why? Because the moment we were declared righteous, it was put onto our account for all of eternity. David says the moment that he was forgiven and declared righteous, righteousness was stamped on his account and his debt was canceled. And God will never hold him accountable for sin ever again. Man, this is good stuff. It doesn't get any better than this. When we truly understand what God has done for us, how can we sit there and frown? Smile. Give him a holy grunt. Do something! I mean, it's like, do you realize what he did? Oh, that's good. That's nice. But the bottom line is we need to recognize and understand this. Now we need to go to the second thing. We're saved by faith and not works. That's how Abraham was justified. The second thing is we're also, he was justified by faith and not by rights. And let me spell it, R-I-T-E-S. We live in a world talking about rights all the time. My rights, my rights. No, this is R-I-T-E-S. These are religious rights. These are ceremonies. These are outward things that human beings do to try to somehow or another to be right with God by doing religious rites that turn out to be nothing but wrong. Let me show you exactly what he says. Verse 9. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then how was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but what? Uncircumcised. You know what those Jews who had put their faith and trust in Christ wanted to hold other people to? said, so the only way that you can be saved from your sin, forgiven by God, declared righteous, is what? You believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you've got to be circumcised. Read Acts chapter 15. That was the big debate at the Council of Jerusalem. They made a big deal about, hey, you know what? If you're a Gentile and you're not circumcised, you can never be a seed of Abraham because the seal that Abraham was that all of his people would be circumcised therefore you can put your faith and trust in christ but you're not completely saved yet from god's wrath until you're circumcised then the deal's completed and you, you know we laugh at that today but let me tell you something we live in a world that does the same thing we say you believe in jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then you got to be filling the blank then you better be baptized then you got to start going to church then you got to read your bible then you got to give 10 percent of your income then you got to receive the sacraments Or whatever it is. There's always Jesus and something. An argument once and forever because we go back to, what does the scripture say? The scripture says this, that Abraham was reckoned righteous before God when? Before he was ever circumcised. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and it was 14 years after Genesis 15. You got it? Here's the deal. Abraham was declared righteous for all of eternity, 14 years before he was ever circumcised. So the argument the Jews had that you can't be saved until you are circumcised is thrown out by the very word of God, using Abraham as an illustration, saying, you know what? Well, God saved Abraham before he was circumcised. Let me just explain it to you in very simple terms. If you are a sinner who has never invited Christ into your life or believed upon him for the forgiveness of your sins and you go and be baptized, you are a dry sinner who comes out a wet sinner. You understand it? All right? Now let me take it a step further. If you are an uncircumcised sinner who goes in to be circumcised without believing in Jesus Christ, then you come out a circumcised and sore sinner. But you are still declared unrighteous or guilty before God. If you go to church as a sinner without believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you go to lunch after church as a sinner. I can't make this any clearer. The Bible was so clear on this point that religious rights are wrong before God. Then, what was the purpose of circumcision? It was to seal the promise that God had made on an outward sign, So that those would know that what had happened inwardly had already taken place. Now let me use baptism as a simple illustration. Why should a person who believes and puts their faith and trust in Christ be baptized? Because the Bible says to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission. Jesus said, go into the world, make disciples and baptize but what's the purpose of baptism? For the forgiveness of sins? Not at all. The purpose of baptism is obedience to God. It's an outward sign to the world around us that we have believed in our heart and we've been reckoned righteous with God. If we believe in our heart, we shall be saved. See, the reason that we're baptized externally is so the world around us knows that we have accepted or believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We've been declared righteous and it's an outward sign that that has taken place. It's an act of obedience. That's all and that's what it's for. Why do we, uh, why do we uh, as together, why do we have, you know, celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because he said to do it as a memorial or a remembrance of what he had done for us on the cross and his resurrection. We celebrate together what we know that Jesus has done in our place. And that's why we do it. But you know what? If you try to celebrate it without ever coming to know him, all you're doing is you're just eating a little bit of something. It doesn't make any difference for you and your relationship with God. We are Abraham was justified by faith and not by rights, Abraham was justified by faith, and not by works, and Abraham was also, as we take a look at this, justified by faith, and not the law. This is another real simple and easy argument. I want to kind of put it together so I can get to the next one. I want to spend a little more time, but it's this. Abraham was justified by faith, and not the law. Well, the Jews thought, hey, if we keep the law, then we'll be righteous before God, and God says, you can't keep the law. We've already seen that. And he said, well, what's the purpose of the law? Why God give commandments that no one can keep? The reason that he gave them is so we can understand the holiness and the perfection of God and God's standard. God set a standard, none of us can meet it. The purpose of the law, the Bible says, is to be what? A tutor or a teacher that leads us to the need for a savior, Jesus Christ. I can't keep God's laws. I can't keep his commandments. And you know what's interesting about it is this, and I love this. Listen, very simple. Ends all arguments once and forever. What does the scripture say? The scripture says this, that Abraham was declared righteous before God, listen, 400 years before God gave Moses the law. How in the world can Abraham been justified by God for keeping the law when it wasn't even in existence? It came 400 years later. How can these people argue that, you know what, all we do is keep the law and we're right with God. (laughs) It's like, well then, gee, if that's the case, then how was Abraham declared right with God? Because Abraham didn't even live in the time where God had already given the law. It was 400 years later. So guess what? Abraham was declared just and righteous before God aside from the giving of the law. The purpose of the law was to help all of us see that we need a Savior badly. We're all guilty. We're all in deep trouble. That's the wonderful thing about calling Abraham to the witness stand. Is Abraham in heaven today? Absolutely. Why is he in heaven? Because he believed God. Because it was by faith and not works. Because it was by faith and not circumcision or religious rites. Because it was by faith and not keeping the law. He couldn't have kept it either. In fact, he didn't keep it before it was even given. He violated it before he even knew what it was. But the point is this then what in the world is the last thing he's talking about? And it's a very simple one and a very profound one. And we need to spend a few minutes on this, but that's this. Abraham was declared righteous before God by faith in God's promise. Notice that. For the promise in verse 13, Abraham or his descendants, that he would be an heir of the world, was not through the law, but it was through the righteousness of faith. For if those are the law of heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation. That's the argument that he used for why Abraham was justified apart from the law. All the law does is condemn. The law will never save anybody. But Abraham was saved by God before the law was given. Now he goes on and says, For this reason it's by faith. That it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, "A father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him who believed God, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed. In order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. What's the point? Very simple, and we need to understand this very clearly. Abraham was declared right with God by his faith in a very specific promise of God. The very specific promise of God was that God, through Abraham, would give Abraham an heir that would be, and there would be as many as multiplied as the stars of the heavens. Now, it's one thing to believe that God is going to make you a great nation. And you 'll have millions of descendants it 's another thing to believe that before you even have one son in order for the process to get going, you need got to have one son to start. And you know what the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and God let Abraham get to the point where Abraham, no way, shape, or form could ever take credit for what God was going to do for him through him. Why did God wait as long as he did i 'll tell you why. Because he wanted Abraham so physically incapable of producing children that it would take an absolute miracle of God for this to take place. And for those of you who maybe don't see this or recognize it, Abraham was, as God says, like a dead man. Everybody understand? Okay, if not, you'll think of Abraham the next time you see one of those Viagra commercials. Abraham was like a dead man. Simple terms. Abraham could not produce. Couldn't get it done. Wasn't going to happen. God took him to that point because he wanted Abraham to see this was all about God and not about him. In the Bible, if you don't believe that, read Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham believed the specific promise of God that through his loins, through him, would come a son, who would be his heir, and the heir would lead to the multitude of heirs, and he would become a great nation. But even when he was unable to do so, guess what? God was able to do it. For with God, all things are possible. And I love that because it's also a picture of the virgin birth as well of Jesus Christ. But how can I have a child for I'm a virgin? Hey, you know what? With God, that's not going to stop anything. That's not going to stop anything. With God, all things are possible. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that Sarah believed God even when she knew she couldn't have a child, that God would do it. And you know why? Because Abraham believed the specific promise of God and believed in resurrection power. Abraham offered up Isaac because he believed that God could raise the dead. The reason he believed God could even raise the dead was because God had done it in his own life to produce a son. When he was yet like a dead man, God still produced through him. And not only just him, but continue to. It's exciting stuff. And the reason I bring this up is this. I do not believe that any person could come into a a genuine living faith with the God of the universe without first believing in a specific promise of God. It is not vague. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Anytime I'm dealing with a person, I think we need to challenge each other to consider this, but anytime we're dealing with a person who is thinking about putting their faith and trust and believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, let's take them to a specific promise of God and ask them, do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe what God says, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty before God? Do you believe that if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, that you will perish, that you're on the way to hell? Do you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he sent Jesus Christ onto the cross for you? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that you are guilty and you put him on the cross? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place? Do you believe, if you believe in him, that you'll have eternal life? Do you believe that God can do what he says he can do? And the person whose heart is right with God will believe a specific promise of God. And the moment we believe a specific promise of God, we are declared righteous before God. We need to recognize and understand in this world of vagueness how precise God's plan really is. For the wages of sin is death. You believe you will die one day because you are a sinner. And the consequence of sin is death. You believe that that you're guilty, and that's why you'll die. Yes. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that God will give you eternal life? Do you believe that you'll be forgiven? Do you believe what God says? See, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses unto salvation. you believe the promises of God? See, Paul takes it all back to Jesus again, and we'll wrap it up on this. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, But for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who delivered up who, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification, you follow that? You see what he's saying? He's saying that, you know what? You and I delivered Jesus up to the cross. You and I delivered him up to the cross. God delivered him because of us. I'm guilty. And because I'm guilty, God put Jesus Christ on the cross. He delivered him up. He says, but those who believe in him, speaking of God and his promises and his plan. those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, do you believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Do you believe that God put him on the cross? That's the gospel message. Do you believe that God put Jesus Christ on the cross in our place? You believe that God three days later rose him from the dead, indicating he was, that we can believe in him and trust in him. Notice what he said, he was delivered up because of us. He says, and was raised because of what? Our justification. God raised Jesus from the dead so that those who believe in him would be declared just before God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Let me put this all together in closing. Dr. Harry Ironside, for 18 years, was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He told of visiting a Sunday school class once while he was on vacation. So he went into the Sunday school class and he was visiting, and the question that was asked by the teacher, he said, How were people saved in the Old Testament times? Which was our question. How did people in the Old Testament be declared righteous or just before God so that they would go to heaven? There was some silence in a room, and after a pause, one man replied, By keeping the law. The teacher said, that's a good answer. That's right. Dr. Ironside interrupted and said, You know what? Um, my Bible says that by the deeds of the, of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That the law can't save, but the law condemns. The teacher, a, bit, a little bit embarrassed, so he went on and said, Well, does somebody else have an answer? Another student replied, They were saved by bringing sacrifices to God, by offering sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. The teacher said, Exactly. That's exactly right. Dr. Ironside said, well, you know what? But my Bible says this, that you'll never find forgiveness by the shedding of the the blood of bulls and of goats. And the teacher, embarrassed at this point, looked at him and said, you know what? Well, why don't you tell us how a person in the Old Testament was justified before God? And he said, you know what? People in the Old Testament were justified just the same as people in the New Testament. And that is by faith. By faith in the promise of God. By faith. Not by works. Not by religious rights. Not by the law. But by faith in God's promise. Men and women, it doesn't get any simpler to understand than this. The wage of sin is death. You're going to die because you're guilty. I'm going to die because I'm guilty. The wages of sin is death. But the greatest news is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sufficient for every person that ever walked the face of the earth, but limited only to those who believe. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and also to the Greek. Have you believed in the specific promise of God that you will be forgiven of your sins by believing in Jesus Christ. Had you believed that, you, nobody else, but you, then the Bible says the moment that you do or the moment that you did, you're declared righteous before God and just before God for all of eternity. And I am confident of this very thing, that the day I'll be absent from my body, I'll be present with the Lord because I believe the promise of God. Father, we just thank you and we praise you and we love you Because you've done it all. The free gift of eternal life. Free to those who receive, certainly not free to the giver. But you're just and justifier. And it's your program and it's your plan. God, help us to be people who recognize our guilt before you. Who declare, as you have declared, that we're guilty. Who are broken and contrite because of our guilt. And come before you and throw ourselves upon your mercy and respond in faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. There's nothing to add to what he did. He's done it all, and he declared it on the cross when he said, it is finished. By not relying upon anything in and of ourself, God, it's Jesus, and Jesus crucified. God, help us to be people who believe in your specific promises so that we'll be declared righteous as your servant Abraham was so many years ago. God, we just thank you, and we praise you, and we worship you, and we honor you, In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, amen.